Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you here for episode 47. And we are going to be attempting to record video for the first time today so that we can upload it to YouTube. We'll see how well that goes. We are, I at least am not the most technologically savvy. So, so if we're real lucky, we'll have something workable by the end of this. If not, it may just be an audio episode and this whole section will get deleted. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so if you're hearing this, you know, we succeeded and you should go check us out on YouTube and see the, see the lovely video of our faces that will re- make you regret that you clicked on it. Uh, I, I've never, yes, I, I, I don't want this. I don't think you want this, but we're going to, we're going to try it. So there you go. This is, this is our gift to mankind, question mark. (laughs) Whatever it is, we're now super self-conscious. So there you go. In this episode, we wanted to talk about something that is (laughs) so hard. (laughs) Deep breaths, Dan. Deep breaths. Don't even worry about it. So today we're going to be talking about the book 1984 by George Orwell, which I think is a particularly funny choice after we've had an episode discussing and debunking the uh, some uh, conspiracy theory ideas. You know, we've we've talked about conspiracy theories and about circle the here. conspiracy theory worldview and some of the dangers of of that worldview we now segue from that to talking about one of the all-time favorites among conspiracy theorists and that is 1984 i mean 1984 is where we get many common words that we use today like big brother i mean big brother is not a word but a common word usage a common vocabulary term right that thought police is another one yes that all originate you know with with 1984 i mean it is one of the most famous totalitarian dystopian novels out there and in many ways is the precursor to many of the the more popular dystopian books and movies that have come out recently like hunger games and and those others are are based on this dystopian idea that was first popular in the early 20th century and has recently had a resurgence. Right, the guy who writes it, George Orwell, is fascinating. the The idea is he's a he's a socialist supposedly. Now I don't know enough about him to comment on what exactly that means to him, because having written 1984 and Animal Farm, which are two of the perhaps the two strongest fictional cases ever made against socialism <laughs> as i would define socialism right it's it's strange it's strange to say the least of course he he's also covering much more than that he's you know this is more uh communism and uh totalitarianism as so, well so dan i did a little bit of research into george orwell's life so his name is actually eric arthur blair and he was born in 1903 and so he grew up and I mean, his entire life, I mean, he died in 1950, so he was, he was only alive for 47 years. But in the span of his life, 
the world was going through monumental changes. You know, you have the Industrial Revolution that had just taken place and was continuing to take place. You had the rise of some of the largest totalitarian regimes ever. You know, you had you had Soviet Russia that, that came about and had different experiences. Right. You had, right. you know, the, the rise and fall of imperialism. You had so many different things going on in the world. First and second world wars, yeah. Yeah, that, that he experienced and was able to to write about. So he's he's English and you know he he experienced a lot of different things he ended up serving in burma as as a as a uh, they they call it imperial police which just seemed weird but he was a you know a british police officer serving in burma temporarily he then quit that and became a writer full time for the rest of his short life but he spent a lot of that time exploring the lowest castes of society you know he spent he spent a long period of time under a fake name living as a vagabond in london and in paris and experiencing what those at the very bottom of society experienced which i think is what drove him what moved him towards socialism right he saw the plight of these people who are struggling and that became his focus as an author is is these people who are who are left who are left to the side, and so he ends up becoming, you know, a a democratic socialist is the term. But what what distinguished these this group of socialists is that they were in direct opposition to most socialist governments that existed at the time. You know that they they wanted to they wanted the economic principles of socialism, but they rejected almost all of the applications at the time. And that's definitely something that we see with George Orwell. George Orwell, as you said, was is the strongest critic, maybe of all time, of communism and these socialist powers that existed at the time. I mean, Animal Farm is one of the most succinct and brutal, you know, debunking of of communism, which is which is interesting, coming from a democratic socialist, right? And how the pursuit of equality of outcome ends up corrupting itself, and you 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 end up with, as we were talking about in the last episode, you end up with just a different hierarchy of power, where the people at the top are privileged and and on down, just on a different basis. In Animal Farm, where you get the the pigs at the top who begin to look exactly like the the humans and begin to. Uh, eat all the apples, right? Because they they have they get these these privileges because of the weight of their position and so on. It ends up just justifying a different kind of kind of system. And as you said, that's a that's a strange place to be arguing from for someone in favor of socialism. I put it in quotes because what he means by that is clearly different in some sense than what we mean by it today. And where you and I argued in the last episode that that socialism fundamentally is about the uh, abolition of private property and the and with that the the attempt to reach an equality which he clearly seems to to see as a as an effort that is potentially corrupting and which mm-hmm. which makes you wonder if he's more in line with the kind of democratic socialism of today where you see people just advocating for programs through the government to help the poor but not necessarily trying to equalize everything per se across the board 
But whatever his motivations... He definitely had a unique perspective, which lends itself to these books. I mean, Animal right. Farm and 1984 so are, are two books that, you know, I mean, over 70 years old at this point, but are still worth reading. If you haven't had a chance to read either of those, it's definitely worth your time. Animal Farm, Animal Farm especially is, is incredibly short. It's basically... It's basically a pamphlet, and 1984 is the size of a of a small a small novel, but they're they're chock full of disturbing disturbing ideas. <laughs> I mean, 1984 in particular, Animal Farm, you know, Animal Farm you can read and it's it's relatively mild. The principles behind it are extreme, and the ideas that it's talking about are disturbing, but the actual imagery and the examples used, I mean, it all it is all animals as this analogy to a communist society and so it's it's not as graphic as it could be 1984 is is much more is much more graphic i mean you know it spent a lot of time talking about torture you know there's there's sex in it all of it is just a little bit more adult in nature but right it's dark in the same sense that you that, that dystopians tend to be dark um one of the interesting things about these books, Brad and I have talked a lot of times about how outside of the podcast, and perhaps we've mentioned inside, that we would love to do episodes like this where we focus on a book and an author because part of what you as the listener need to be able to assess politics today is to get out of the narrow range of ideas that are often discussed in politics. And we, we try and do that to a degree, right? We try and provide a perspective and a critique of these common ideas, try and make you aware of them so that you can have the tools you need to be able to see through the maze of things and, and get above your own biases to a degree and, and so forth. The fact that George Orwell is so unique is helpful in that. The, the fact that his motivations are so foreign in some sense to, mm-hmm. to what we, you would see today is helpful. The things that he saw, what he experienced firsthand, all of those things are going to help. And books, books have a way of doing that, that it's difficult to do in conversations. Cause even, even Brad and I's manners and the, and the terms that we use come from somewhere in the world today. And some of it is things that we picked up from reading and things that we've developed in our own vocabulary of discussion amongst ourselves and others that we we talk with but to really escape it someone who lived before this time is a very useful tool and going to 1984 i was surprised to find a really fun dramatic uh reading of it per se it had sound effects and voices for the characters that was free on youtube that had been crowdfunded or, or through Patreon, some, some form, somebody had gone through a ton of work to make mm-hmm. a very high quality product that I really enjoyed listening to as a refresher for discussing it today. And things like that are awesome. He, he apparently did a lot of other dystopians, famous dystopian novels. I saw, I think Animal Farm's on there. Brave New World is definitely on there. Nice. But if you can get into 1984, you should give it a shot. It'll, it will, as Brad said, it might disturb you in some ways. Um, as it tries to explore all the facets of human life within this world and what he thinks the, the regime, the party would try and would tolerate or not tolerate and so on. But, but it can also be very helpful despite its, its dark nature. Yeah. Every time I, every time I read 1984, Dan, I definitely struggle with it 
you can ask my wife. I've been depressed all week reading 1984 <laughs> again, and it just it just uh it it seeps it seeps into the rest of my life as I ponder not just this disturbing totalitarian dystopia that's being described, but also as I think about the the many the many applications of the principles in this book that apply to what's going on today because because there's there's a lot of there's a lot of crossover obviously every time i see more it's it's disturbing every time i read it i'm like oh this this also applies this also reflects the world and the in the direction the world's moving so it's it's funny that you mentioned a, a brave new world dan because many people hold up 1984 and a brave new world as two different proposals or or mm-hmm. hypothesis hypotheses about how the world would look in a in a dystopia how the world would look in a truly totalitarian government and in fact when george orwell wrote 1984 because 1984 was written after a brave new world uh huxley the the guy who wrote a brave new world actually wrote an open letter to george orwell critiquing 1984 and suggesting i mean it was it was it was gentle, but suggesting that that his theories in A Brave New World were a more accurate representation and simply an easier system in order to control the populace through use of pleasure and distractions rather than through the boot and the fist. Right, and, and even, even suggests kind of genetic manipula- manipulation and things, a, a carefully crafted world where no one would want to push against it. Yes, exactly, versus, versus Big Brother, who's, who's very very overt you know what i mean like (laughs) the organization for for the children is called the spies you know their job is to spy on their parents but it's not subtle they're just straightforward this is what it's called you know they have two minute hates throughout the day and that's what they're called two minute hates where they're shown the enemy and then they're encouraged to hate that enemy and that use that to to channel their energy and it's all very unsubtle and and I think that a brave new world definitely has a lot of value and is and is worth looking at as well. But I think that writing off 1984 is a mistake. Obviously, we don't live in a world of 1984. We don't live in a dystopia where our every our every facial expression, our every word is analyzed by a Big Brother, and if we step out of line, we're immediately you know vaporized, taken to the ministry of love and tortured. Obviously, that's not the world that we live in, but there are many different aspects of it that are very, very similar to to what we see today, and those are definitely worth talking about. They are, and I I find, I mean, as, a, as my two bits to throw in there, we're not comparing the two right now. I think 1984 is far more compelling. I think 1984 is far more believable uh and has far more and reflects reality much better but i i know a lot of people who would argue that well and 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 part of it is that you look at the world today and the world is not necessarily a subtle place you see a whole lot of overt pushes that seem to be incredibly effective you know one principle that i think we see a lot of is that two minute hate you know this idea of we're going to give you an enemy it's going to be an overt characterization of an enemy. It may not even be real, 
Mm-hmm. And then we're going to take time to remind you of that enemy, remind you of why you should hate that person or that concept or that idea and use that to control you. And I think about Donald Trump and the two-minute hates that were pushed on a regular basis for his <laughs> entire presidency where where media where, – where, I mean you have CNN. CNN is a great example because CNN – fully accepted the idea of a two-minute hate for Donald Trump. They would take time out of their day to report the equivalent of fluff pieces about Donald Trump that were about a silly thing he said or maybe he mistyped something. It doesn't matter. We're just going to hate him for it and laugh at him for it. And that is going to focus our energy against Donald Trump. And and you can look at the past you know, the past 5 or 6 months with Joe Biden and look at how Fox News has handled Joe Biden and you'll see a very similar thing happening where you, you have 2-minute hates. Did you see Joe Biden falling down the stairs? Oh my goodness, he is a terrible president. He he can't even walk. You know, he can't even walk up and down the stairs. How how is this man our president? Right. Did, Did you see him stumble over his words on the teleprompter? Can't he read the teleprompter? Exactly. I I have I don't think he's made a misstep in his words without it becoming news. Mhm. Mhm. Why? It's a 2-minute hate. Exactly. It's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it is. It's the mischaracterizations. We we talked about the uh, in the last episode how, uh, or or the yes, it was the last episode where they were people who will go and they'll interview people on the street and ask them questions and look for people who have no idea what they're talking about and say, you know present this as this is a, what a liberal is. This mm-hmm. is what a Republican is. Look at this fool. Look at this person who who knows nothing about this. This is what Republicans are like, or this is what liberals are like. These are these are essentially two minute hates. You're right. The name the name is not subtle in the book. <laughs> yeah, and then you're. I think that is a valid critique of 1984. That I doubt it would be named such. But then you, the characters within it, Winston notices it. Winston is our our protagonist here. But he, when he talks to Julia, she doesn't seem aware of a lot of them. I was. He notes that she doesn't even. She doesn't realize that the wars have changed to different targets over the years. That had just escaped her notice. wasn't wasn't worth noticing. And uh, so you wonder how many of the other things. Once it once it's tradition, what it's called doesn't really matter so much. No, you're you're absolutely right, and and it's something I was thinking about in general with the book is that so many of the things are so overt, and they just seem ludicrous that anyone would buy into that. But but I think I think the way he wrote the book is that is that Winston, the main character, is supposed to be, even though he's been in this world for the majority of his life, not his whole life, but the majority of his life, he's supposed to be reacting almost as if he is a member of as if he's a reader. As if he's just a normal yeah. individual coming yeah. from our society who walks into this society and is like, whoa, this doesn't make sense, even though in reality, if it, the book was 100% accurate, he'd be much more used to all of these concepts. And that... Right. 
and that right, once you get used to unique. it, you don't you don't notice you don't notice anything. I mean, I think I I could see a world where we called something as ridiculous as a two minute hate because it doesn't matter. I'm not expressing myself well, Dan, but I'll come back. I'll we'll loop back to this later, and I'll get <laughs> loop it. back to it. come back to it. I, I was going to say that uh, the uh, Winston is interesting in that way because he is uniquely positioned to be able to see see society for what it is, or at least to have some inkling of what it is, right, and what it's missing. Um, the people around him do not have that, and this is one of the one of the crazy things. This is where parallels really well with North Korea. North Koreans often have no idea what they're missing. A young North Korean born in that society would think that starvation is normal. Indeed, they might believe it when they're told that this is the most prosperous society and the richest this society has ever been at this time. That everything is a wild success because they have no standard against which to, which to compare it and in which to deny that. Winston has access. So there's within uh, 1984, there's the four different branches of government. Branches is the wrong word, probably departments. They're called ministries. And as they probably still are in England, aren't they? <laughs> you at least yeah. have the ministers at the head of the head of these departments, these ministries. And you have the ministry of peace. There's the ministry of truth, the ministry of plenty and the ministry of love. And they all have different tasks. The Ministry of Peace is foreign policy. It's war. Ministry of Truth is the, the propaganda and information arm. Ministry of Plenty is the economics. And the Ministry of Love is, a, is the loyalty arm. Is the it's the thought police. Uh, it's the thought police, ultimately. Um, but Winston works at the Ministry of Truth, and what he does is he rewrites news. And that's so it, it's so trippy the way it works. So all everything is centralized in this story, at least for the people who matter. There's there's different classes. There's the inner party, the outer party, and then there's what's called the proles, who are basically ignored. They're they're the poor essentially, but they're ignored and they're allowed to do more or less whatever they want within within a certain scope of things. They're more or less free. But the inner party and the outer party, the people with actual influence and who work for the government are very closely monitored and they and they have access to some piece of the system like winston mm -hmm. sees news and he writes articles for the newspaper or rather rewrites articles for the newspaper so the government will make some prediction the ministry of plenty for example will come out with numbers regarding the economy and a couple days later, they'll get reports and things, and they'll find out that what they had said was wrong. And so they will gather all of the records where that is stated. They will destroy them, and they will create new records correcting the speech, correcting what the Ministry of Plenty said. So the idea is the Ministry of Plenty was wrong. Well, you can't prove that if you gather all of the things that they where they where that's written, where their predictions are mm -hmm. written, you destroy them and you replace them with new ones claiming to be from that time that have the correct information on them. And so he's, he, as he describes it, he keeps rewriting the past. He keeps changing the past. And so you never actually know what happened mm -hmm. and you never actually get any sense 
you never get that standard with which to compare the future to. Because they're constantly lying and correcting information and changing things. And they, they of course, you, you might guess from this, they destroy all the old books. There are no books printed before a certain period of time. They, they limit all access to those things. They kill people who talk about it. They, they, they control all of the information so thoroughly that you cannot actually know what's true and what's false. You can't prove it at least. Mm-hmm. He knows that they're lying. Mm-hmm. And it's just so, it's, it's just such an interesting world. Of course, the, it's interesting to note that he knows that they're lying, but he only knows that vaguely. You know, because he's right. because he's helped them change the information, which is first of all the only reason that he knows that they're lying. But in terms of knowing the actual reality, he never right. he never does. You know, right. he doesn't know the truth. He just knows that what's there is a lie. Yeah, exactly. That at some point they had to lie because they had two conflicting statements. But how close either of those statements were to the truth is something yeah. he could never find out. Right. This is this is one of the this reading through it, this was the my favorite epiphany I had as I was reading it. Winston is looking at specific numbers about the production of boots, I believe it was. Yeah. And they had predicted that they were going to produce – the Ministry of Plenty said, we are going to produce something like 150 million pairs of boots this year. Well, the numbers come in, and it turns out that they had produced 52 – something like 50 million. And he goes – and he corrects the old documents to say, we produced 55 million, which is in excess of what they, he, he corrects it. So he corrects it in two ways, excuse me. He corrects it. So they had predicted 50 million, which is what it was, but they, then he says they actually produced 55 million. So that's so they exceeded have, their quota. So yeah, so the, everyone can feel like production's actually been overly successful they're overachieved but then he points out that even the one thing in there that seems to be true that they had actually produced x amount from the reports probably isn't true because they don't actually have the capacity or the interest to calculate how many boots had been produced (laughs) because it doesn't matter it, it really doesn't matter how many boots are produced if you can control all the information. And he said, for all he knows, they may have produced zero, right? And, and who would know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> who would know the difference? Those, you could always say the 50 million that were produced went somewhere else, the 55 or whatever the number was he ends up printing that they mm-hmm. produced, mm-hmm. which is, which shook me a little bit when I read it because There are political conversations today, especially about the predicted effect of a policy on jobs, where this is exactly what's happening, (laughs) where where you have a prediction, this policy will create this many jobs. Now, that that prediction may as well have been based on nothing for how accurate (laughs) it's likely to be. Then you're going to have the numbers come in, but the process through which they come in is so convoluted and so complicated and so affected by everything else other than just that policy that, that when you, it, the numbers do come in, what do they show about the effect of that policy? Nothing. Maybe nothing. You know, there's so many <laughs> factors influencing it that that number might not be true. 
But then you'll get the other party will come in and they will say, they will, they will look at the numbers and they will draw some number out of it somehow <laughs> through some, through some method that, that attempts to sift the actual effects of the policy from everything else, which is impossible. And they'll get this estimate and they'll come and they'll say, look, you failed. You predicted this. This is what happened. Actually, it wasn't, not only did it not create any jobs, it cost us jobs. And then the party that is defending the policy will go through and they will do a similar process and they'll go, actually, it was even better than we expected. Look Mm -hmm. at this. Mm -hmm. And they can find a way to show that in the numbers. And none of these, (laughs) every, every step along the way, the numbers can be entirely arbitrary. And so they're not even arguing about what's true. They're arguing about it's, it's all spin, right? It's all appearance. Yeah. And that doesn't happen in every sphere, right? There are some, some numbers and some things in which you can get some calculations that are useful. But when you're trying to assess the effect of a policy on the entire economy, good luck. Good <laughs> luck. You believe, believe what you will from the results. There's, there's so, it's so hard and there's so many factors that you can show what you would like to show. And it'll be, you know, and all of those numbers are probably wrong. No, and that's something we've talked about before with statistics and with polling, that numbers can be very easily distorted to show what you'd like them to show, which is why you have competing polls and competing stats used by both parties that are completely contradictory and yet are apparently both accurate. You know what I mean? Obviously, Uh there's a problem when, you know, for example, with gun control, each side can cite studies, you know, that conclusively prove their side of the argument. Obviously, there's a disconnection with reality, and most people assume that it's just the other side that's disconnected with reality. <laughs> and and assuming that is 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 a is 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 arrogant. <laughs> Wonderful at the confirmation least. bias. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because it's very convenient assumption. It's very convenient to assume that that it just so happens that everything that they say is true is wrong and everything that your side believes is is accurate. Right. Right. The, uh, uh, which, which makes the name one of the, one of the key concepts in the book is called doublethink. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea of having two contradicting ideas in your head simultaneously. And you can, it's, it's a necessary tool. It's like, it's a, what's the compartmentalization is kind of it's the kind basic of like idea it. of it. Uh, there's some parallel between it. But the idea that you know that these numbers aren't real, but you support them anyway. You you know you have some sense of these things, and you're able to hold contradicting ideas in your head. Um, one, of the, one of the ways that that's manifest is in the, the slogans or mottos or statements regarding these ministries. Uh, the Ministry of Truth. Uh, and the, uh, the Ministry of Peace is my favorite one, where they say "War is peace" is the slogan of it. Mm-hmm. Of course, war isn't peace by definition. <laughs> They're mutually exclusive states. It's either peace or it's war. 
But their claim is that war is peace. And they need to get you to believe that because they're perpetually at war. This one, when I read this book for the first time years ago, while we were perpetually at war in the Middle East and still are, we're still at war in the Middle East, in case anyone wondered, are we in a state of peace or are we in a state of war? <laughs> I, I don't know anymore. <laughs> well, well and, and Dan, you know, when you hear the idea of war is peace, you're like, that is obviously untrue. That is mm-hmm. obviously a contradiction. And yet when someone says we are fighting for peace in the Middle East, a lot of people nod and say, yeah, that's what we're mm-hmm. doing. We are fighting for peace. In other words... The war we're fighting for, while not actually peace, is end goal is peace. Therefore, this war is about peace. And, right, and right, next thing right, you there's know, there's that subtle shift there. Really, what you're arguing is that war is peace. Right. And, and this is how people say it. they say our war over there makes us safe here. Mm-hmm. Right? Our yeah. war is peace. Literally, mm-hmm. it causes Literally peace, is peace here. here. And that's, and that's just one example of, of doublethink. Doublethink is one of the most powerful concepts in this book, but it's also one of the hardest for me to wrap my head around. <laughs> you know, I mean, he spends so much of the book talking about it, and yet I still tru- struggle with it. You know, one of the key, right. key ideas of it, you know, one of the key quotes and, and concepts that he keeps going back to is, is two plus two equals five. If the party needs it to be so, that that the idea is is that you can hold in your head the idea and believe that two plus two equals five if it's necessary in order to achieve the party's goals. And that just sounds it just sounds stupid when you say it like that. It just sounds <laughs> it it sounds right. like self deception in the simplest sense. It also sounds just like a game, like it's just make believe. But but it's really not. It's really not when you dig into it and you look at how people act and how people align themselves. There's really a lot of truth to that, that people tend to believe what they want to believe. And it has nothing to do with reality by definition. It doesn't have to deal with reality in order for them to believe it. You can, you can do something as simple as look at two kids who get into a fight. And then they both go and tell their parents what happened, and their accounts are wildly different. You know, this happens at work where two people get into an argument, and then they both go and talk about what happened, and their stories are completely different (laughs) without either side necessarily lying. And yet – and often when I I hear them telling – talking about what happened, I understand that neither of them – it's not that one side's lying and one side's telling the truth. Neither of them are telling the truth. Neither of them are accurately recounting what happened. And there are lots of studies that have been done in, in scientific inquiries into how the mind works and how memory works in yes, our ability to tricky. remember what happened. And it's so skewed by our own personal incentives that basically with the right incentives, you can believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5. And reality be darned, because reality is is not what we care about. What we care about are, are the things that we care about. You know, whether right. that's that's our family or or our 
you know, our, our livelihoods, our incomes, our, our favorite sports team, because when it's our favorite sports team, it's fine what they did. But when it's the other team who did it now, it's now it's a foul. That's, that's a very simple example of double think, but that is double think when you're thinking what, what my team did was okay, but what the other team did was not okay. That's Mm -hmm. double think because you are, you are ignoring reality in order to have a fake reality that conforms to your worldview. And that's double think. Yes. Yeah. Two plus two equals five is the example that he keeps referring to, but he keeps referring to it because it's the extreme. It's the, Mm -hmm. it's the one that seems the most absurd. And it's the one that he says in the end, if two plus, if two plus two doesn't equal five, then everything they're doing is wrong. If, if there is something, some objective reality, uh, then this whole thing is, falls apart or so his claim is. I, I, I have yet to follow that thread through to the end, but he tries to cling to that. And in the end, after being tortured in things, he does declare two plus two equals five. Mm-hmm. So they're torturing him. He, he gets to the point where he goes, I, the guy's asking like, how many fingers is he holding up or something? He yeah. finally says, I don't know, which is true at that point because mm-hmm. he's physically, <laughs> physically collapsing under the, under the pain and the torture and things. But you may remember Brad, or maybe you didn't, maybe you escaped this. Did you hear about the, the debates that were, were going on for a while about whether two plus two equals five? I must have missed it. You lucked out. You lucked out. <laughs> there was a several month period where you could find lots of articles about it, where many people were arguing that yes, two plus two can equal five. And that, that that can happen is weird. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. And what they're, you know, there, there's the, there's the simple argument of, well, maybe the word two means something different, right? The, the two is a, a word attached to a meaning. And if you, you can use the word and attach to a different meaning, mm-hmm. and then it might equal five, depending on what you mean by five, right? Mm-hmm. That language is not inherently, that the definitions do not convey themselves within the word. The word doesn't reveal the definition, doesn't have a strict definition. But if, but for people who mean more than that, and there were some of them, people who take social constructionism all the way to the top and say everything is socially constructed, why can't two plus two equal five? It's just a question of do we want it to? Mm-hmm. Just a question of is that, is that what society wants? Is that what they want? Is that what they, they want to mean or what they want to? And it's, it's at that level, it is just sheer, seems to me to be playing with words and that level of social construction is a lot of nonsense because there is an objective reality, whether, whether or not we're capable of identifying it. And if you act like two plus two equals five, assuming we're sharing the definitions, things don't work in the real world that will work if you act like two plus two equals four. Which, which suggests an objective reality too, right? Something mm-hmm. underlying it, that this doesn't work. But what's freaky about 1984 in, in that the ministry of truth in their work and the work that Winston himself does for a living is that you would never know if it works. Mm-hmm. You'd never know. And that is one of the major problems with the complexity of our government today is I have no idea what the consequences of so much of what they're doing are. 
We can, mm-hmm. we can reason through them enough to say that this is going to be negative, but this is how it plays out on a small scale. And this is the effects it'll have. And this is, this is predictable, but what it actually does is almost impossible to distinguish at so many levels. And the federal reserve is perhaps case in point on that, that, that the actual consequences are so obscured and so hidden and so impossible to predict. But you know what the effect it's having, you're just not sure how it's playing out and what and how to measure that and those kind of things. It's it's a it's a serious problem. It's uh I kept thinking of how modern government policies are so obscured in their cost because the costs are always so hidden. If you applied a tax to every bill that passed to pay for it immediately, and that were some kind of requirement. Mm-hmm. Most bills would fail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would that would kill most programs and most bills immediately if just the cost were visible. Mm-hmm. But in some sense, even those numbers would be arbitrary because you don't. You're still several steps removed from the cost because it's in taxes and it's in it's in ways that uh, that play out in, in a complex market. No, it's it's exactly like like the production of boots you were talking about earlier. You know, they come out with a plan. They say the infrastructure plan is going to cost two trillion dollars. Okay, well, actually, now the plan's going to be in two parts, and it's actually going to cost four trillion dollars. And then, assuming the plan gets passed, five years from now, you know, there'll be a, a you know a government body that will go back and tally it up and say actually. In reality, it ended up costing the government $7 trillion. And those will be three very different numbers, right? Mm -hmm. But in reality, there is a real number of what the actual cost is. And there is not a single person on earth who will know what that number is at any point. At no point will any person on earth be able to tell you what the actual cost of any of these major bills is because there's so many different facets where it comes through. It's simply incalculable. You know, right. you can you right. can look at the the number of dollars that the federal government actually budgeted for that project, but that's not its total cost. There are no. there are many more costs to any government action and no one's going to be able to give you an accurate number. No, it's it's true. It's a, it's a very difficult calculation problem. And even even on the individual label level, it is cal- calculating such things is basically impossible. Like if you were to say, "What does it cost me to uh, what would be the costs and benefits of getting such and such job or doing such and such thing?" There are many that I will know and there are some that I will not know. Right? There are things that I just can't anticipate because the future is uncertain and because of the way choices play out in the world, um, which makes measuring the actual cost and converting it into a kind of unit mm-hmm. impossible in a very real way. To assign a number, even even in dollars, you, you actually can't convert everything to dollars. <laughs> There's what, what do you do with emotional pain? What do you do with, uh, with depression and, and with uh, lost friendships or other things that are of critical importance to the human experience, but which cannot be described in economic terms. Mm-hmm. But if you create a vast policy that impacts people in countless ways, some of which are monetary and some of which are not, and you say, this is going to have such and such a cost. I mean, a, a good estimate is better than nothing, 
but so much of those numbers are going to be arbitrary. At least when it's at my level, I assume the risk and I assume the the penalties. At least the cost, whatever it is, is mine for my choices. Mm-hmm. At least to it within some degree, I suppose other people bear some of the cost as well. But uh, but at least there are actors to which we can assign responsibility and culpability. And that's a that once you get to a large scale, that quickly evaporates that that quickly disappears which and the problem becomes insurmountable which lends itself fantastically to double think the more obfuscation there is the easier it is to to double think you know when when someone's holding up their hand and you see five fingers you know if you consider a thumb a finger five digits it's very hard to say that he's holding up four fingers instead of five or vice versa you know what i mean mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but when when it's hidden it's it's much easier you know some great examples of double think that we've seen in the past year um the republicans last year were more than happy with trump as president to pass massive stimulus bills that cost you know trillions of dollars and then joe biden got in office and all of a sudden they were deeply concerned about the budget and the cost of these bills and where is this money coming from? How are we going to pay for it? Do we really need it? And all of these questions that they didn't have a few months before. And and of course, they'll tell you, oh, it's because the situation has changed and because of this and because of that. But that's just double think. They're 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 it, telling it you that it's two BS. plus two is five. What's happened is that their incentives have shifted. Before it was advantageous for them to vote for it for two reasons. One, the Republicans were in power, and two, their their uh, constituents wanted them to. People the were scared. And Trump wanted it, and tr- Trump wanted them to. But but their constituents wanted them. To pass these bills, Republicans across the United States were freaking out and wanted help. And so they did it. And then a year later, Trump no longer was in office and the the tune had shifted. And so they shifted. And just like that, they did a complete 180. And then the Democrats. Thank you. And then. And then the Democrats, sorry, Dan was just texting, was a uh, message to me that I'm shaking the camera because I'm getting too excited. Um, <laughs> I can feel the energy. It may I'm, or may not be making me nauseous. I'm just using kidding. I'm using this tiny <laughs> desk and it's, it's ill-advised. Um, <laughs> and then the Democrats, when the January 6th uh, riot at the Capitol happened – were freaking out about how violent these uh, Trump supporters were, how horrible it is what they had done, and, and, and on and on and on about treason and all these things. And yet, when you had month-long riots in Portland that involved attacking government buildings, which is a threat to democracy, just like, you know, attacking the Capitol is. You know, if you, if you right. attack city buildings, if you... If you would uh, storm City Hall, you know, if you destroy a, a police building, those all have repercussions on on democracy, just like the January 6th protests. But all of a sudden, the January 6th riots, all of a sudden, it 
they were completely different. You know, I mean, not even like a little bit different, but they weren't even similar. You had peaceful protests in Portland, and then you had the insurrection on January 6th. You know, not just a riot, but something much more. (laughs) And that's an example of of doublethink. Yeah. It is. It is. There is no principal distinction upon which to do those. There, you could say there's a difference in scale, that the, the building that was January 6th was more important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but in terms of principle, there is, there is no distinction. One is not mostly peaceful protests and the other an insurrection. Yeah. They're, they're of the same kind, whatever that kind is, and just very on scale. And in fact, in terms of raw numbers, there's probably less people involved, depending on depending on which riots you're talking about and things over the years. But over the year or so that those uh, the BLM riots have been going on, um, th- those are great examples of doublethink. And and it's the kind of thing that if you watch the parties when they're in power and when they're out of power, they're really easy to observe, or at least some of them are. They behave very differently. What they support when they're out of power and what they support when they're in power changes. And maybe they notice that, or maybe they don't. Maybe the double thinking is unconscious. But it is a massive inconsistency, and it's unacceptable. It's immoral. It's cowardly. It's inconsistent. And such people should not be supported, and yet they, they're the dominant people in both parties. And that's, that's the way, this is the world that we know. This is the way it works. And and I want to talk about the the conspiracy aspect of this because this is talking about this totalitarian, dystopian world where government has complete control over everything. And that's obviously it's watching everything you do. Watching everything you do. That's obviously not the society that we live in. But towards the end of the book, he's talking to the thought police. He's talking to O'Brien, who's this this man that he's interacted with from the beginning of the book, who's the one who who captured him, right? He's the one who convinced him to, and it's, it's all complicated, complicated, and I, I regret going into it, but he's talking to O'Brien, this man who represents the party and who represents all these ideas. And, and he's he wants to, to plead his case. He's trying to plead his case, and he wants to know why, why they're doing this, because he realizes, he realizes that, that O'Brien understands all of his rebuttals, that he understands the world more accurately than Winston does. He understand how the party's operating. He understand the suffering that's taking place, and yet he's okay with it. And so his question is why? Why is O'Brien doing this specifically, and on a whole, why is the party doing this? Because it's not just one person. It's a whole group of people who are perpetuating this system that results in so many people suffering and being oppressed. And he wants to know why. And O'Brien talks about how the reason is not complicated. The reason is the same reason that people have always done horrible things. It's the pursuit of power. That people have always pursued power and will always pursue power. The only difference is that the party is doing it much more effectively than anyone has ever done before. It's not a difference in motivation. It's just a difference in success. They've succeeded where everyone success. else has failed. And yes, I, and partially because of tools, technology. Yeah, and I, and I bring that up because 
Because there is truth to that, that people have always pursued power and people have always suffered because of it. You know, you can go back and you look through history and you look at the history of governments and the history of individuals. And we have a long track record of oppression by people who didn't need to oppress them, but chose to in pursuit of power. And that principle holds true today. Just because we don't live in a dystopia doesn't mean that that principle doesn't still manifest itself and manifest itself right. in the United States. I'm not talking about, like, as you mentioned earlier, North Korea, where something not very different from 1984 is currently operating. The difference between North Korea and 1984 is in many ways semantic. That. Mm -hmm. The world of 1984 and the world of North Korea are identical. But even in the United States, you look at the two parties and you look at the way they're operating and you wonder why. And the answer is simple. It's consolidation of power. That the power they have, even though they don't control the whole government, even though they're constantly at war with each other, that doesn't matter. Because of the power they control just by having their party. And that motivates them to use things like doublethink. To continue to make decisions that on the whole are bad for everyone. But allow them to continue in power. And we've we talked about conspiracy theories and how I don't think most of the people, I don't think most of the actors are bad actors. In fact, I think very few of them are actually bad actors in the sense that that if you said if you said how many of those people do I think are trying to get power because they want to oppress you, I would say very few, a, mm -hmm. a tiny fraction of them. And part of the reason that that's that our system still has avoided those kind of people is that the power still to this day isn't concentrated in any one particular person's hands very frequently, with the exception of the president. A congressman doesn't actually have much influence at this point in the world. They, they don't. And they, a, a Supreme Court justice does, but they're kind of a strange group. and They're their own thing. The president does, and the president more and more is becoming this kind of person. But at the level of the party politics... What Brad was saying is exactly right. Why, why is it that CNN would feel justified straight up lying or spinning a news story to a degree that is essentially a lie? Yeah, it's that dishonest. Is it's dishonest. Uh, they may not have any particular statement that's falsifiable per se, but, but is certainly dishonest and deceptive. And, and Fox News will do the same thing. And why? They would say, I think in many cases, because if we win this election, right, this makes them look bad. This makes us look good. And that puts us in a position to win elections. And that puts us in a position to decide policies that puts us in a position that then can help people. They want power for good. Mm -hmm. Now, well, the whole process, you want to qualify that? That's fine. I was well, just going to say that the whole process leads them to make bad decisions at every step of the way for a power they never actually are able to use for good that ends up just creating spiraling problems. But but please, sorry. I, I was just going to add to that that there's a strong element of doublethink, that you there have is. a lot of yeah. self-righteous individuals who wouldn't even admit to the idea that they're striving for power 
even as every single one of their actions is driven towards that purpose. Yeah. And 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 that's double think is not something reserved to dystopias and it's not something reserved to no. politicians. It's something that everyone does on a regular basis. Something that I do, something that you do. <laughs> I mean, I mean there are there are whole books on. It. I mean, that's the idea behind leadership and self-deception and that whole school of thought which is incredibly useful and worth looking into is the fact that human beings regularly deceive ourselves in a mostly subconscious a weird hybrid subconscious conscious way that allows us to act selfishly while still denying our selfishness and and i think that explains a lot of it dan no, you're absolutely right and i'm glad you brought the arbinger institute into the the the, the anatomy of peace leadership and self-deception um the initial essays i think it's kind of the chains that the, the Bonds that make, make us, us free. free. The bonds that make us free. Thank you. And they have uh, other works, I think, that are out now at this point that I haven't read. Uh, the the basic idea being that as you act contrary to your consciousness, you feel guilt and shame and other things, and twist the world so you don't have to feel that way. Mm-hmm. You, that that self deception is a natural process that occurs essentially automatically as we act contrary to our own principles and what we what we think we should do and it's it's an attempt to justify ourselves we act crookedly and we make the world crooked mm-hmm. so that everything looks straight mm-hmm. and uh it, it, those are some brilliant ideas there we should we should talk about those at some point those would be worth getting into they're tan tangential to politics except except all of human nature is open if you want to understand politics and you want to really get into the ideas not just political science Absolutely. I uh, there are so many more things we could talk about the way they, uh, the way they educate, the way they, uh, the fa- the fact that competent people are <laughs> disappear in things, the 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 uh, the Ministry of Love. I love the Ministry of Love. The uh, do you remember what their 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 one-liner is do they have a one-liner i'm not sure i don't remember what theirs is what the ministry of love is if they have one i remember war is peace freedom is slavery there's others i guess they're not attached to the ministries that's right um but the ministry of love is all about loyalty and i kept thinking as i'm reading it that what this is about is actually unity unity you could substitute unity for their goals and it works perfectly well a political tool to achieve unity is is just subjugation because politics works by force it works by force if you say we need to unify and by that you mean you need to pass a law that makes everybody do the same thing mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not talking about unity you're not talking about cooperation i i've listened to a number of people push back against uh certain arguments for freedom and liberty on the basis of cooperation. They say, but wait, 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 we need to cooperate on some things. And that's why we have government. And I go, no, no, that's not what government does. <laughs> like that's somewhere in there. Something is, is very wrong. Mm-hmm. Government is not the means to cooperation. Government is the tool through which you impose on people who will not cooperate. Yeah. Cooperation does not need government. 
cooperation. Yeah, right. If, if you're looking for cooperation, if people will cooperate, if they, people are willing to cooperate and thus could be said to cooperate and not merely be compelled or coerced, then no government is necessary. The use, the proper use of force is against those who are trying to compel others, who are trying to hurt others, who are trying to do these kind of things. And that is the realm in which force is justified. You don't just, you can't justify force by saying, well, he wasn't doing what I wanted him to do or what I think society should do. That's just tyranny. And that's not, that's not unity. That's not love. That's not loyalty. That's just subjugation. It's just oppression. And somewhere in there, there's this idea that politics is the tool through which society gets along and through which society acts together. It isn't. It's the tool through which a few impose on everyone else. And perhaps in a few cases, that's justified. Like I said, there are times when you should impose on someone. That person is trying to kill you. <laughs> you should impose on them, right? If someone is, is hurting someone on the streets, you should impose yourself on them. You should use force and violence and whatever tools you have at your disposal to stop them and to keep them from doing the things they want to do. But and and Dan, that's that may very be, different in a free world. That may be the the greatest double think of of all time in terms of politics is that idea that government is a benevolent force in the world. That government is a force of cooperation, is a force of unity, is as you say inherently contradictory. You know, I mean that that is how people talk about government is is riddled with contradictions because if people talked about government in the way it truly operated, if people talked about government without without double think, it soon becomes it soon it soon becomes disturbing. I I think of uh, <laughs> I think of many of the police encounters that turned violent in the past year that have gotten so much attention. And so many people have pointed out and said, well, they should have simply done what the police officer said. If there had been zero resistance, if there had been 100% compliance, then in most of these cases, no one would have died or no one would have gotten hurt. And that's, that's fairly accurate. That's, that's, that's fairly correct. Right. And, and the problem is, is that when you're saying it just like that, you're accepting the fact that when you interact with a police officer, they have control over whether you live or die and you have no rights. You have right. no rights. All you have is the ability to comply or the ability to die. Right. And when you look at it like that, you're like, what kind of terrible system is this? <laughs> you know, why should they have this incredible control? These regular citizens are plucked out. They're given some training, but they're not tested for – for magnanimity they're not tested for incredible <laughs> virtue and character no they're they're people who wanted a decent paying job and now they're given complete control over other people's entire lives how is that okay but we don't look at it that way because as soon as you look at it that way it becomes disturbing and that's something you can and that's why people have had such a hard time with it because they've been looking at these cases as they actually are or at least closer to the reality. 
And it's been disturbing. And when you do that to the entire government system, it becomes that exact same way. When you say, hey, we're, all, we're going to spend money to help the poor, that sounds fantastic. But when you say, hey, we're going to take money indiscriminately from everyone, including those who are struggling. And if those who are struggling don't give us this money, we're going to take away everything that matters from them. And if they don't comply when we take everything that matters from them, we're going to arrest them. And if they don't comply when we arrest them, we're going to kill them. That doesn't sound quite so magnanimous as just helping the poor. When you strip right. away the many layers of doublethink, the many layers of self-deception, of reality manipulation that goes into play when we talk about government, it becomes a completely different thing. The only reason we're okay with government is because the ways we think about government are simply inaccurate. It is not reality. It is doublethink. It is as it crazy is. as two plus two equals five. It is. Otherwise, you could say that if I take a gun and I go to someone and I tell them to do these things or else I'm going to, to you know harm them in some way, I'm going to imprison them or use the gun on them, and they do it, and we're going to call that cooperation. I, I go to the court and I say, wait, wait, wait. We're just I didn't hurt this person. He cooperated with me. <laughs> right? <laughs> because it's perfectly legitimate. Because right, because I didn't shoot him. Right, he complied. He complied, and we're going to call that cooperation. That's what passes for cooperation in, uh, in the realms of, of government these days. <laughs> well, he, he accepted, or, or at a different level, he accepted the bribe that we took from someone else. You know, there was someone else's money that we took. Mm -hmm. And this is cooperation. He accepted the financial incentive that we offered that we at some point took at gunpoint. And if he didn't, he'd go out of business because all the other businesses are taking it. But yeah, the, the, it gets really, really gray really quickly if you take off the, the words that we use around them. <sighs> representation is another one. I think we've talked about it before, the word representation. But we could go on and on because all of these are coded. Everything here is sugar-coated. Mm -hmm. Make the medicine go down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything is, is full of obfuscation and deception that's not centralized. It is in many cases, I mean, it's, it's not, there's not some big brother who's requiring these, these words to be used, but there's just a lot of incentives that have lined up in different ways that encourage people to continue to talk this way. I mean, one of the most effective tools is, you know, going back to the sports metaphor, is the choosing of teams. Is that when you choose the team, you know, Republican or Democrat, you know, liberal or conservative, now your incentives align to protect the side that you're on. And it's something that he talks about in 1984 where they're continually at war with the other nations there's three super nations mm -hmm. in the in the world and they're continually at war and and a lot of the hate and a lot of the demonstrations are about those wars and it keeps people focused on that conflict instead of what's going on within 
within their own country. You know, so much of the problems Thinks are because of the other about. countries. You know what I mean? As long as it's the other country's fault, no one cares. And as long as you're on that team, then you're going to fight for that team. And it quickly aligns so many incentives. And that's the same thing that happens within the party system here in the United States is everything that goes wrong is the other party's fault. And as long as that's the case, you never are actually looking at the issues. You're never actually looking at what your party is actually doing when it's in power because you're always focused on the other side. Yeah, that's, a, that's a brilliant point that I hadn't thought about. That w We've accepted the idea that war is peace and that we must be at war all around the world constantly to, to keep peace. And, and, but we don't have the hate for those nations that we, I mean, we do at times, but, but in general, the focus is not there. In fact, tension is deliberately diverted from those places so that we don't think about those things. And where is the war of, in terms of, of the hate and things? It's between the parties. Mm -hmm. It's between the parties. That's where the attention is sent to how dumb Joe Biden or Donald Trump is mm -hmm. and to how incompetent they are and to all kinds of benign details that are that are not actually worth your attention, but sure make you feel good if what you want to know is that you're right. And so on behalf of, uh, of the ministries here, on behalf of Big Brother, I want you to know that you are right. You just, <laughs> you just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> you are right. I hope that you've interpreted this in a way that, it, that, makes, that justifies your opinions for you. Uh, that's disturbingly meta, Dan. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. I, I, I loved this book. I loved rereading it. It'd been some years since I had read it. I've read it many times. Yeah, I've gained a, a lot of insights and, and new perspectives on the world. I mean, even in our discussion right now, I, I've definitely... I've definitely appreciated that. And I hope, I hope it's, it's, it's helped open your eyes to some of the nuances of how twisted our, our current system is. Mm -hmm. Some of you may be wondering uh, why there's a duck on our, our picture. Is there still a duck on our picture, Brad? Did we eliminate the duck? I don't know if we took the duck off. Some or of not. you we may had, be wondering we had a long why debate there is or isn't a duck on about our whether or not we should take off the duck. <laughs> and for the life of me, I can't remember which way we decided. I can't either. I was going to make a joke about a duck that may or may not be on our picture that is that is serving as our logo, the the kind of cartoon versions of ourselves. Though I didn't have a beard at that point. And now I don't know if it's even there. And I'm looking at Brad because I think he's looking it up. Because I'm, I'm, I'm looking it up and it's taking well, me way longer than While I you're looking have. it up, while you're looking it up, I'll explain the connection to the book. And then maybe it'll connect to us depending on if it's actually there. <laughs> Clearly, this is an ad hoc explanation if it is there. So, at least on our main website, the duck it, is there. Okay, good. So it was, it was all part of the plan. We'll, we'll re-record this episode and it'll be like this never happened. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Nightmare. It's way too much work. We lack the, uh, the will to become, to go back and correct all records. Um, <laughs> there's this great moment where Winston's sitting at a, at a lunch table. There are many moments where he's sitting at his, the tables at work. And there's this guy talking about things. And he, he talks about 
the way the guy is talking, and he compares it to the quacking of a duck. And this quacking of a duck is... It's become kind of a phrase you've, I don't know, I've heard people use it in common parlance, or at least I think I have. Um, but the idea is that he doesn't know what he's saying, and he, and it doesn't matter what he's saying. There's another person in this room now. Uh, <laughs> and it doesn't matter what he's saying, because none of those ideas are his anyway, and he doesn't mean any of them. And so... Whether or not, and, and there's, there's so many people like this, right? They don't know the political ideas behind the ideas they're saying. They don't actually have any means of verifying of what they've been told is right. They have nothing other than that this just happens to be the opinion that they accepted and agree with. And they then repeat these ideas ad nauseum, and they become great at repeating them. Mm-hmm. And so many political commentators are like this, where they're literally puppets of other people's ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's just the quacking of a duck. And the way you can tell this, uh, this is one of my favorite and interesting insight that I originally heard from Jordan Peterson. But the idea is that you can tell if someone is like this by how predictable what they say is. Because in these cases, when it's this kind of person, I already know what they think about all the issues. We often begin at that point in our episodes. We begin with, this is what you would believe if the propaganda and things were, were all you knew about it. And to talk, to have conversations with those people about politics is not only uninteresting, it's exhausting and it's full of anger and it's full of, you know, you're not talking to a person, you're talking to some kind of puppet. You're listening to just the quacking of a duck. It's not communicating anything. Any other thoughts you want to share from 1984, Brad? No, I, 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 I think that's it. I, I appreciate you guys taking the time out. If you have the opportunity, if you haven't yet, please go and read 1984. It's definitely worth a read or a reread if you if you read it back when you were in high school. Because looking at it now and looking at applying these principles to the world we live in today, instead of looking at it as a a literary exercise, is is incredibly useful and and beneficial. At least it has been for me. So thank yeah, you for listening. Yeah, your best bet is to find a small group for it. Then you can discuss it and talk it over and actually actually experience it. Just a group of friends or whatever. Uh, you can get the education that uh, <laughs> that the schools aren't able to provide for you anyway at this point. And if you can't and if you can't find anyone to discuss it, discuss it with us. You know, shoot us an email and and yeah. we can talk about it. We'd be happy to. So I definitely enjoy discussing books. With that, thank you for listening. This has been episode 47 of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can uh, you can support us using our Patreon link there. You can also email us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And with that, have a wonderful week. 